Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 51 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known by all of us by now, of course, as DCU. And not only is DCU a great place to bank at, but they are also a great place to work at. And they are hiring right now for full and part-time positions for several of their branch locations throughout Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So if you, a friend, or a family member is looking for a career change or to start a new career at a credit union, making a difference for their members and their employees, just visit dcu.org slash careers. DCU is proud to be an equal employment opportunity and affirmative action employer. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by mistresscarry.com which is where you can get every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, not just the full-length episodes that come out on Wednesdays either. You get the Situation Report, which is all your rock news and music headlines in under five minutes. Plus, if I have a guest in the war room, you get after-action reports on the podcast. And over the last couple of weeks, there's even been bonus episodes, including Lizzie Hale and Amy Lee and Billy Gibbons. And speaking of cocktails in the war room, we're at 133 episodes of Cocktails in the War Room, my video show that I do live on Tuesday nights at 8.30 Eastern right on my Facebook page. Plus, my event calendar is up to date, my blog is there, my photo galleries, and of course, the online Mistress Carrie store to get your t-shirts, hoodies, barware, swag, everything you need. Even cool baby onesies for all those COVID babies. Okay, episode 51 of the podcast is just in time for the long Memorial Day weekend. And my guest this week, Andrew Biggio, has been a friend of mine for a really long time. Not only is he a Marine veteran and a law enforcement officer, but he has also been working with our veterans for years. He founded the Boston Wounded Vet Run, which has spawned wounded vet runs around the country. He's personally escorted dozens of World War II veterans back overseas to where they fought 75 years ago. And now he has taken his stories and written them down in a new book called The Rifle, Combat Stories from America's Last World War II Veterans Told Through an M1 Garand. Now, according to the description... The Rifle is an inspirational story and hero's journey of a 28-year-old U.S. Marine, Andrew Biggio, who returned home from combat in Afghanistan and Iraq full of questions about the price of war. And he found the answers from those who survived the costliest war of all, World War II veterans. Andy's personal story and his personal journey seeking answers within his own family have taken him around the world. And his rifle has been signed by hundreds of World War II veterans. It was such an honor to welcome him in person to MCHQ to take pictures of the rifle in my war room 
and to talk to him about this amazing accomplishment, finishing and publishing his book, The Rifle. I'm honored to call him a friend. And I think after you listen to this episode of the podcast, you're going to want a copy of his book. Allow me to introduce you to Andrew Biggio. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely, pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Mr. Biggio, welcome to MCHQ. Thank you for having me and not forgetting about me like many people have. <laughs> All right, you got to move the microphone up closer to your mouth. Sorry. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to be back in business in the studio here after this long BS of a year and a half of uh, the virus. And you've always been there for our veterans. And I'm glad to um, talk more veteran shop with you. It's nice to have you here in person. I haven't been able to do a lot of interviews in MCHQ. And it was one of those things where now that the world is starting to open up again, I was like, you know what? It would be really great to see you. I've known you a really long time. But I just wanted to be able to sit down in person because it's just nice to be able to be social. How has this year plus been for you? Because you're usually a pretty busy guy that travels a lot. This year has been from hell. Yeah. Not the hell that about like the veterans we're going to talk about, you know, but it it was just, it was hell. The day job, um, the, I, I am now in the business, right, of... 95 to 100 year old men because I'm writing about World War II. I'm doing World War II interviews. Well, guess what? They are the highest risk for the pandemic. So that didn't make business good for me at all, especially after five years of writing and then getting ready to go on book tours, do book signings. Well, no, I can't. Not unless I, you know, because there was a chance I could kill these veterans. Right. Uh, that's, They're the ones we're all sacrificing right, for. Absolutely. And then. Naturally, uh, I had plans to bring a few more guys who, who fought over in Europe back to Europe to show them their foxholes, go over them their stories with them actually on the battlefields, and we couldn't do that either because obviously the lockdown, the travel ban. And uh, and the other thing is, is also when they're that age, if they're not out doing physical stuff and, and keeping their brain going, they also decline pretty quick to being trapped in their house in quarantine. So it was like a bad double-edged sword where you don't want to go expose them to getting sick until you've, you know, until everyone's had vaccines and stuff. And at the same time, it's, you don't want to abandon them 
You want to make sure they're getting their groceries. You want to make sure they're using their brain because at that age, obviously, dementia and Alzheimer's. And and if they're not doing their little daily walks and stuff at the grocery store or the shopping malls like they do for exercise, then they they will decline. And I've seen it happen. I've seen guys who are for 94 years old and 94, you know, 94, 95 a year or two ago were in great shape. You couldn't believe it. they looked like they were like in their 70s. They stayed in their house for a year. They didn't get out, and now I see them, and they're hunched over or they're weaker. It's it's it. You know, you can blame the pandemic, or you can just blame them older age. But I know it took a lot out of them, and of course, then naturally, I had several who died of actual COVID. So this year sucked. Well, you and I have known each other a long time. I'm so proud of you and so excited for the release of your book, The Rifle. That's been five years in the making. But for anybody that is not familiar with who you are, if you don't mind, I would like to go back and kind of tell a little bit of your story and how you ended up with the rifle. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Everett, Massachusetts, uh, in the Everett Projects on Veterans Ave, believe it or not. (laughs) You were destined. (laughs) Uh, In 2006, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, there was two uh, wars going on at that time, uh, although it seemed like Afghanistan was kind of faded and every, all the focus was on Iraq. So um, it wasn't long. A, a year later, I think 07, 08, I, I got mobilized to go to Iraq myself. I did a deployment in Iraq, which um, was very long, very, a lot of hard work. Wasn't too uh, exciting, Not any, no heavy combat or anything like that. I came home, went back to college, and sure enough, I was on my way to Afghanistan, um, that was definitely a, a rougher tour, a lot of more IEDs. The battalion as a whole, 125, we took uh, 50 casualties, 50. Uh, what year were you there? 2011. Okay. And I came home and um, I was at the stoplight again of my local town and I see Andrew Biggio Square. Now, my name is Andrew Biggio, but that square is not dedicated to me. It was dedicated to my grandfather's brother who was killed in action during world war ii so i sit there and i i always tend to ha- ask myself what happened to that andrew biggio that didn't happen to me it's almost like a survivor's guilt i'm not like comparing what my service to a world war ii veteran but it made me sad to think about a 19 year old named andrew biggio dying in a combat zone when i did not and i came home alive so that really messed me up. Every time I'd go home, I'd be at that stoplight, that sign, looking at that sign. So finally I said, I'm going to find out what happened to this kid in World War II. Because the family really didn't know very much. And it's the same story across the country. The World War II generation, the greatest generation, was also the silent generation. You got a, a Western Union telegram, your kid got killed. That was like the end of it. The family was never the same again. The mother wept. But there was never any digging. Like, how did he die? Who was he with? What battle was he in? You know, there was never really any serious, un, un, you know, unraveling of... And I know that because I've been all over the country and people's kids and grandkids have no idea what their grandfather did in the war or their dad did. And the or, other guys in those units mm-hmm. came home yep. and went back to work. Yes. The greatest generation, they left the war behind, mm-hmm. my grandfather included, until my cousin joined the Navy and my grandfather was much older. He never spoke about mm-hmm. anything that he had done. And 
there was nobody to ask. Right. It's not like they had deployment reunions where these guys were getting together and spending time with the Gold Star families. So these stories just got lost in time. And a lot of people don't even realize they had a great uncle killed in World War II because they were never taught about uncles, Uncle Jimmy or whatever. You know, Grandpa never talked about it. Because I'll meet people and say, hey, your last name is Grimaldi. Did you know there's a Grimaldi square there? They're like, yeah, well, actually, apparently it's my great-grandfather's brother, you know. So there's so much not known, and it's so sad because when a World War II veteran um, tries, you know, I don't, I'm gonna wanna, I want to stay on track, but there was, there was a lot of World War II veterans who at first weren't not keen on meeting me and being involved in my project until I told them this. Hey, do you know that people are, are forgetting history? They don't know what you went through. They don't know anything about your unit. I know you've never talked about it, but this is it. It's now or never. You're 96, you're 97. Help us. Leave us with something. Yeah, tell us your story before you're not here to do it anymore. Yep. So I've had a great track record. and 99% of the veterans responded to my letters, responded to my calls. Uh, I think I can count two of the 200 veterans who, you know, were just, you know, refused to, to be involved. Two out of 200. So it was great. But back to my uncle... Um, I remember my grandmother had saying he had left uh, that my great grandmother saved his letters he wrote home before he was killed. So when I went into the shoebox underneath my grandmother's bed, the first letter I opened up was how much he enjoyed the M1 Grand rifle. This this the first letter I opened up was him writing home about basic training and how much he enjoyed the M1 rifle. And I was like, I have to go out and buy an M1 rifle. I want to feel what he felt. I want to hold what he held. What this kid is talking about in this letter. This long-lost relative. So that's how I got the rifle. I went out and bought it. So what is an M1 Garand rifle to someone that is not in the military, that doesn't know a lot about historical firearms? The the rifle is, the M1 Garand is also known as what General Patton called the weapon that won the war. Because it was the first time our troops, every single troop, was equipped with a semi-automatic rifle. So you could just pull the trigger. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now the Germans and the Japanese are going, boom, one, reload. Boom, two, reload. So our American soldiers have a semi-automatic rifle issued to them for the first time ever during World War II. And it shoots as many bullets as you can pull your trigger that well, fast. Yeah, you, you have to reload the eight-round right. clip. Um, but you, you can know. shoot those eight quicker. Yes, than your enemy who's reloading. Right. And uh, and the, the weapon's very accurate. It was a good weapon. And so um, that basically, you know, in a nutshell, that was the issued basic rifle at that time. Just like today, ours is the M16 or the M4, you know. So that was their weapon of their time. So when you place this weapon into their hands, the memories just soar. I, I barely have to even ask any questions. Every one of them smiles from ear to ear. Once I put that rifle in their hands and they start telling me a story and then I just hit record. So where did you get the <laughs> rifle you bought? I think this that one was from Arizona. I think I ordered it um, from an app called Gun Broker. It was the, it was the cheapest. I could not find an M1 Grand. They are getting very hard to find. I could not find one in the state of Massachusetts, southern New Hampshire, and Connecticut at the time I was looking for one. They, I called every gun store. Nobody had a wartime. 1942, or excuse me, 41 to 45 M1 Grand. Because it's wood. Yep. Yeah, it's wood and metal, yep. And do you know when they stopped making them? Um, I Well, stopped making them. I, we stopped issuing them, 
um, basically right at the beginning of, uh, uh, excuse me, the Korean War was the last major conflict that we stopped issuing them, Korean War. Uh, fast forward to Vietnam, they had the M14, there was some M1 grants floating around, but that's when you saw the birth of the M16, you know, right then around that time. But the Korean War was the last time it was uh, used in a major conflict and issued to every buck private and sergeant going out the door. So you get this rifle because you're inspired to kind of understand why your great uncle was writing letters about this weapon that he had been issued. Mm -hmm. And then you have it. Do you take it shooting? No, I, I had the rifle and I remember like, like a little kid, I'm in my living room and I'm, I'm aiming in on it and I'm playing with it and I go and I take it to my grandparents' house. And and my maybe my cousins or aunts were over at the time, and I was like, "Look, this is what Uncle Andy had in the war, you know." And they just viewed it as like a gun, you know. And I'm like, "No, this is you know what Uncle Andy carried," and you know, it didn't. It's not like it registered to them; it registered to me. So I was kind of like, "Okay, great. Now what? I have this rifle. I was excited." Are you the only one in the family that was in the military? Yes, at this time, yeah, yeah. in this generation, yeah. So. I said, wait a minute, there's a guy like a town over from me I know who was a Marine in World War II. Why don't I take it to him and show it to him and see what he thinks? Like, I want somebody to be excited about my <laughs> new toy with me. So true. <laughs> and his name was Joe Drago. He was the first man, okay, the first World War II veteran I visited with this rifle. And he was 91 when I met him. Uh, not, not when I met him, but he was 91 when I brought him the rifle. And what year was this? I think 2016 was 17. 2016 or 17, and he had really um, declined in health like everyone around that age. His his legs had atrophied, really skinny. He was, you know, more or less bound to a recliner's chair like most elderly people are. And I was like, Joe, you know, bugging him. And I said, look what I got, and I put the rifle into his hands. And that's when I saw the magic happen. I mean, he went from being a dwindled down old man to a young Marine again. He raised that rifle up. He put it in his shoulder. He was aiming in. He was swinging it around. I was looking out. I remember like moving my head as he's the barrel, <laughs> the barrels coming across my head. And he just starts going into the Battle of Okinawa where he fought. And I sat there for two, three hours listening to about the Battle of Okinawa. And. There was like a whiteout pen he had on his table, and I said, sign sign this rifle. I always want to remember this, and he wouldn't do it. He's like, this is such a beautiful firearm. Why would you want me to mark it up? And I'm like, no, just sign it. I want you to do it, and he, he signed it. And when I left the house, I'll never forget. <laughs> this is the first time I've actually talked about leaving his house. It was a warm day just like this, and I remember holding the rifle in its case, and I said, I want to get as many signatures you can say fuck <laughs> i want to get as many fucking signatures as i can because that was awesome and it just became a damn journey obsessive crazy journey 200 of these guys later it, different units i wanted to cover the whole war on this rifle navy guys army guys air corps guys the war in the pacific the war in europe the concentration camps the POW camps, Omaha Beach, Utah Beach, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima. Like, I wanted to just cover the whole war. And it was just, 
such a positive journey and it actually helped me in a lot of ways because, and by me, I mean representing Iraq, Afghanistan guys that if these guys can live a successful life after combat, so can we. And that's another um, part of why I wrote the book. So a young veteran can open up to chapter three when I talk about, you know, um, John Katsaros and they can say, geez, this guy went through the ringer and he lived to be 96 years old and had a family and had a life like, so can I, you know, so. Well, this book and this rifle and that life changing day is not where you started working with veterans. And I, I bring it up because this is how you and I met mm -hmm. that before you bought this rifle, you started the Boston Wounded Vet Run. Yes. Which was how many years ago now? 11. So 11 years ago, you started a charity motorcycle ride for a wounded veteran. Yep. And not only has it turned into a massive event in Boston, but how many wounded vet runs are there now nationwide? It's fluctuated. I think at, the, at our highest, we had, I think, at our highest, we had uh, 17 or 14. And I know that for for a fact now there's like 11 actively going. I think, you know, because, so it, it's funny you bring that up because my rifle following on Instagram and Facebook, it's like they have no idea what the Boston Wounded Vet Run is. The Boston Wounded Vet Run is totally different. They don't know. And that's why I so, want to connect it with people. Yeah. And it's not just Boston, because obviously this podcast, not only mm -hmm. is it nationwide, yeah, yeah. but it's in 102 countries around right. the world. Yeah. And well, people are going to hear this and say, I know the rifle. I follow the rifle. So like there's, there's like 28,000 followers of the rifle on Instagram, and they have no idea about the Boston Wounded Vet Run. They have no idea. And it's a massive event. Right. So mm -hmm. basically, in a nutshell, these wounded vet runs select wounded veterans and you raise money to help them and better their lives. Right. Yeah. So basically, I pick different wounded veterans of OIF and OEF or just military service after 9-11 uh, who have been either severely injured in combat or have been really hurt in a training accident. And we will ride for them. We will collect money. Thousands of motorcycles will ride for them, and we give them all the cash. Nobody collects any salaries. We redo houses. We buy them brand new cars. We get them recreational needs, transportational needs. Uh, let's say their spouse needs a car, and they're, they're both you know there's a soldier missing his legs, and his wife and him share the same car. We'll get the wife a separate car to make their life easier. So you can retrofit the veteran's car specific right. to their we've disability been, needs. We've been down that road before where it is such a pain in the ass for a veteran who ne needs a... Um, a gearbox to, you know, push and pull in order to drive a car. If he has no legs, they use the hand controls. And then, but if the wife has, the wife can't drive like that. She's not trained how to drive like that. So she has to remove all the equipment if she has to use the car. So why don't we make the life easier, get them a Ford Focus for the wife or something. You know, it's, it's a lot of other organizations and including the, obviously the government don't have our bylaws. They won't just buy someone a car to buy a car. They won't pay off credit card debt. Uh, they won't, I won't care if I cut a check for 10 grand because the kid wants to take his family to Italy or, or, or just live his life after being maimed. And, you know, that's where my, me and my biker audience, we could care less. You know, I have people hand me thousands of dollars and they say, I don't care if the kid gets hookers with it, man. Just, <laughs> it's with, it's for him. I, I've, I've heard that. To before. just, to just, it's quality of life. That's it. It's not just necessity, but it's actually enjoying the life that you have as right. well. Because 
I think about my friends and all the men and women I've met in 11 years who are missing their arms, missing their legs, severely burned, blind in one eye, missing an eye, paralyzed. I think about them now and they're enjoying life. We're surrounding them. We're patting them on the back. We got them covered. But I always, you know, I hate to think about when they're 60 years old or 70 years old or, you know, 50 years old because I don't know where that support's going to be then. I don't know if they're going to be living alone. I don't know if they're going to be in a tub and they can't get out or something like that. And I want to keep this going. And I know the Wounded Vet Run keeps the awareness, especially for the young kids, you know, that I see show up on street bikes and just bought their Harleys and they're riding in the Wounded Vet Run getting educated. And so, yeah. So can you, for anybody that's listening that's not from the New England area, can you tell me where some of the other wounded vet runs are around the country that they, they, they might be part of it and they just didn't even know it was you and that it's associated with the rifle indirectly? I So, yes. So we do the Boston's Wounded Vet Run, naturally, at Boston Harley. There's an upstate New York Wounded Vet Run. I believe they do that out of Troy, New York. There's two in Florida. There's the South... Uh, Southwest Florida Wounded Vet Run out of Naples, and then they have the other um, vet run out of the Orlando area. They've had it at uh, Seminole Harley-Davidson. We have the North Carolina Wounded Vet Run. We have the Virginia-slash-Washington, D.C. Wounded Vet Run. We have the Kansas Wounded Vet Run still going strong. We have the Colorado Wounded Vet Run still going strong. Um, Oh, Phoenix killed it. Phoenix is great. Great wounded vet run out there. We've had San Diego wounded vet runs. Um, I don't think they're active anymore. Um, let me. So think. they're all over. Yeah, yeah, they're all over there, and they're fun. And the mission statement's the same. Every nickel goes to that wounded veteran. You know, so. And one of the one of the reasons why I bring it up is that the Boston wounded vet run that I've been honored to to attend multiple times. A lot of the time, you bring in speakers. And guests to either speak to the crowd that rides that day or you bring them in for different seminars over the course of the weekend of Mm -hmm. the event. And you've brought some of these older veterans to come in that weekend and to meet these legends Mm -hmm. is such an inspirational experience to hear them tell their own story yeah i think so we started to get so big i think that was the year we had like about five thousand people that the towns finally said hey listen we have to have this event on a sunday and i was bummed out about that because saturdays were a great day but it was just causing there was too many businesses open too much traffic on saturday so we moved it to sunday so then i had to come up with a new idea well, what the hell how can i entertain people the whole weekend so i would bring in i said to Mixed generations of veterans come up with new ideas, do roundtable discussions, do a panel, do a documentary screening on the night before the ride, and and that you know we then I started seeing World War II veterans at my wounded vet ride, and I started having you know the code talkers come and and you know POWs come and other veterans and Vietnam Medal of Honor recipients and I was cross cross breeding veteran generations so which is something that. You would think would be intuitive if you're a veteran that you're all part of that prestigious group. Yeah. But there has not been mixing amongst the generations yep. of veterans up until recently. Why is that? I can definitely tell you it's because of the gap in service. So 
from Iraq, Afghanistan to World War II, that's 65 years difference. From Vietnam to Iraq, Afghanistan, it was about 40-year difference. So a 40-year gap is because this is the same question that's brought up at the American Legion and the VFW meetings I go to. Where's the younger veterans? Why aren't they joining the posts? Why don't they come down? And it's because I'm telling you, I mean, I'm different. I'm cut with a different cloth. I eat, sleep, you know, and breathe veterans. But other guys are coming home. They're getting out of the service. And they're starting their life. They're going to college. They're getting a job. They're having kids. They're spending time with their family. And hanging out with uh, a 70-year-old at the VFW is not on their, you know, agenda right now. It's not. And I'm not trying to sound harsh, but it's the it's simply the truth. It's a generation gap. And, and everyone, a lot of people who are in civic veteran organizations can contest to this, excuse me, attest to this because you're seeing, um, you're seeing so many of these posts close and stuff because of lack of membership. Well, we didn't have a draft. There isn't 16 million of us like there was World War II veterans. It was 16 million World War II veterans. Um, I can't tell you how many, you know, OIF, OIF veterans there are, but there ain't that many. For anybody that doesn't know what those th- those acronyms are, by the way, because there's a lot of non-military people that listen okay. to the Mistress Carrie podcast, mm-hmm. OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom. Right, Afghanistan, yep. So you've got this track record with the wounded vet runs where you're working with veterans. You've got this military lineage of service in your family between your great uncle who the square is named after and you was there anyone in between or any other members of the family that were in the military no nope and what was it about it that made you pick up the family torch i have no idea i literally remember being super young and just wanting to be in the military or be in the Marines, just very, very young, third, fourth grade. I think it was fifth grade I said Marines. And then it was like eighth grade, nine eleven happened. I said, shit, I'm going to miss everything. <laughs> That's a very strange thing to think in the eighth grade during a terrorist I attack. Know. I said, motherfucker. Fucker, the war is going to be over. Right? <laughs> nope, they were both sitting. Yeah, no, trust me, there's been plenty of war for you. Crazy, but they were both sitting there for me, you know. Um, but were you always someone that, as a kid, was interested in like war history? Yeah. It was just something I, I you was always such interested a dork. in. I remember, and I've never told anyone this because it's so geeky. <laughs> I don't know how old I was, but I think I was like. I don't know, maybe fourth, fifth grade, I had a World War II club. And in order to get into my World War II club, you had to tell me, you know, certain questions. You know, who was the leader of Germany during World War II? Uh, You know, who attacked Pearl Harbor? You know, stupid little questions little kids could know or guess. And, yeah, it's it's been like that very young. I remember sixth grade, I would purposely go to Walgreens two times, three times, just so I could give money to the guy selling poppies. You know, yeah. selling the poppies. Nope. Some people don't even know what that is. But that's that, a Brit that started in Great Britain, correct? Yeah. yeah. And the and I just remember because I looked at this old guy with this this fancy hat on that said, you know, whatever, Army veteran or World War II veteran, I'm sure. Cause I came across so many World War II veterans um that, you know, at the time I wasn't obviously writing a book or had the rifle that it amazes me the men I came across over the years that I never got a chance to 
fast forward and meet them. But some I did, which are amazing stories. I couldn't believe some of them were still alive when I found them. Well, when when we all start to realize as we get older, you know, you, you get blessed with youth when you're young, right? But not the brains. And life experience, myself included, doing the work that I've done with veterans over the years since my trips overseas, it kills me that I had my grandfather there who spent two years straight in the South Pacific Mm -hmm. and then volunteered to go to Korea after World War II. And I had him until I was 20, no, I was in my 30s. And he never talked about it. And I never pressed him. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I had because yep. there's stories there that all I've only been able to uncover Google searching sure. the ships yeah, and stuff. Yeah, the USS Biloxi, yeah. And so it's one of those things where it's like as you get older, you start realizing that those old guys with the hats selling the poppies outside the, the drugstore, we're walking by heroes they made movies about i have tortured myself over this because my my grand so now on my mother's side my grandfather was a 10th armored division veteran and fought in the battle of the bulge and he died when i was like you know practically born so all the stories i had from him were passed down to me and plus uh a journal he had of his writings so i scoured the country trying to find men from his particular unit and it just killed me that I couldn't talk, that he couldn't talk to me or tell me how it went down exactly with his own words. You know, I had to cross-reference interviews, meet other men who were there at that time, go to Belgium, stand on the battlefield, just wishing he could talk to me to point me to tell me where the tanks were, where the machine guns were, because I'm writing about it, and I wanted it to be flawless. And it was just, oh, it's brutal. You know, it's like you wish you could just reach into the outside world and say, tell me what happened, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I feel you. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's sad. Um, that's why, you know, my rifle Instagram page, man, I can't believe how many young kids follow that page. I'm talking 15 and up is my, is my Instagram page. And they're all saying the same thing. They send me screenshots, black and white photos of their grandpa or great grandpa. He died in 97. He died in 2003. He died a few years ago. I never got to meet him. All those messages. Thank you for, they're watching their grandpa on my Instagram page. You know, that's the way I, so I'm, ha- I'm very happy to, to do that. So the day to get back to your rifle. So you have that experience with the first veteran in the first signature and you go, okay, I want to connect the entire generation, the entire, both, both sides of world war two, the Atlantic mm-hmm. and the Pacific and represent all aspects of that war on this rifle. Yeah. I gotta, I can't tell you the, f- the first meeting, but I'll tell you the the juicy beef of it. And before I left the house, he gave me a, a, a velvet crown royal bag. And I opened it up, and it was Japanese gold teeth. <gasps> so it was then, like, you know, he thought us, not and us by I mean Marines, because I physically know people who were involved in this incident. Uh, he thought the U.S. Marines pissing on dead Taliban and getting in trouble for it was like a joke. He's like, how could you guys get in trouble? It was nothing. He said it was, I quote, it was nothing compared to what we used to do. You know, they were, it's, and so he kind of introduced me, right? So a lot of people who put on the uniform, wear the the uniform, 
they they live they first of all it's like the World War II generation that inspired them to go into the military a lot of them but then there's a certain thing that you do feel like you're living in the shadows of the World War II veterans and that's perfectly normal because we are on our hands and knees and we view them as gods the stories they you know the the stories the movies the HBO miniseries the books like you're the reason why the military is the greatest is considered the greatest military in the world, you know. And it was the last war where the world was united, and it was very cut and dry, mm-hmm. good versus evil. It sure was. Vietnam wasn't like that. Korea wasn't mm-hmm. like that. The first Gulf War wasn't like that. The Obviously, now, yeah. everything post nine eleven has not been like that. Yep. But World War Two, everybody. I mean, obviously, on the right side of the war, just agreed that that's bad and we're all going to get together and stop it. Sure. And And if you wore a uniform and came home having fought there, you were a hero, period. Now, everything you just said is spot on until I met Joe. And that self-consciousness of thinking about the wars I served in compared to what he served in, it, it didn't erase it, but it made me feel a little bit more comfortable that the greatest generation did some not so great things. Okay. Cutting teeth out of enemy combatants heads, driving around with their head on the hood of a Jeep, um, removing, you know, dismembering body parts, taking no prisoners, war crimes up the yin yang that are not reported. Um, getting to blow up whatever house you want, getting to put a flamethrower in any cave you want, getting to, you know, uh, get a flamethrower tank to just blow a few houses away because you think there might be enemy in the air. That bombing complete countries, carpet bombing complete countries without any care, that doesn't exist anymore. Those guys got to do what they want in order to win. And this is Joe who opened my eyes to like, hey, you know, they had the media on their side. They had the newspapers on their side. It didn't care. They were going to do what it took, took to win. And don't beat yourself up so much about, you know, kind of not being in such a uh, a just war because the ends we were justify the means. Yeah, it was like we, it was it was pretty horrible that went on, particularly on the island of Okinawa. You know, um, I, I I the numbers are in my book, but I can't remember. But I mean, it was like tens of thousands of civilians killed. You know, civilians. So, just in that battle, um, and you know, of course, the Japanese using them as basically human shields and. I mean, listen, we we know that it wasn't all okay because we dropped two nuclear weapons. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. there there are Hollywood stories about World War II and obviously conquering Hitler and, and the end of the war. You can't white... War is bad. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone that has fought in war that raves about how fun it... Like, war is war. Right. And... It's not good mm. to have to do it no matter how evil the enemy. It's still war. No, I know that. And when I brought I brought 16 veterans, I always say 17 because there was John McAuliffe was supposed to come with us. He passed away the day we left. But I brought 16 veterans, including a British World War II veteran, back to Belgium for the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. I was promoting that trip a lot because I was fundraising for it. And I had a young German kid reach out to me and he said, um, my grandfather was a tiger tank commander. Uh, he would love to make peace with the veterans. Is it possible that I could bring him to lunch while you guys, while you're in Bastogne, Belgium? And 
I said, hey, I think that's awesome. And I said, whoa, 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 pump the brakes, Andy. Did the Germans try to kill you? Were you the one that they were fighting? I got to ask the veterans first. And what a what an amazing question to be asked. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I have to ask the veterans. There's no friggin' way because I uh, you can't spring that. I on can't uh, right now. I I wouldn't want to sit in a room with a Taliban. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Especially it was like. It was like, I don't know, what was that, two, three years, two years after Eric Iman was killed in Afghanistan, and that was like a refreshener, even though I had already been out of the service for nine years, and then, you know, a friend of mine got killed by an IED in Afghanistan, that just re-brought back that, no, I wouldn't sit at the fucking same room as one of these people. So, let me run it by um, the veterans. So, we were at Logan, uh, excuse me, we were at the Massachusetts State Police Barracks before we made the move to Logan Airport. Now, just aside, you get these 16 veterans. Each one of them got to travel with a caregiver or a volunteer. Family member, family member. A family yeah. member. And this trip was zero cost to these veterans. And you fundraised to raise the money for I all of them to go. $75,000. I brought 16 veterans, 16 of their family members, and all the younger veterans paid for themselves to go and chaperone each of those veterans. Please, <laughs> we'll go into. There's also the World War II veteran nonprofits. That's all. Oh, Jesus, I really boiled them up when I did that. So, so you're at the state police barracks. Yeah. So I'm at the state police barracks, and I got we got some downtime before the flight. So I get the I'm all in the same room. I said, "Hey, gentlemen, um, I think I might have the room was cleared out. So I think it was a perfect time to address it. I don't want them to feel pressured." <clears throat> I said, "Hey, guys, uh, there's a German soldier who wants to have lunch with us." Just flat out said it. Uh, his grandson reached out to me. Um, how does everyone feel about that? I, I think I said, does anyone have any objections? And nobody said it. It was a unanimous vote. They all wanted to have lunch with the guy. This is going back to you saying, hey, war is war. War is not pretty. They know what it took to win that war, and I think they finally were letting it go. They said, absolutely. And then when Jurgen Tegetov, that's his name, Jurgen Tegetov, the, the King Tiger tank commander, walked into the restaurant we were in they all clapped for him coming in because that takes balls to the biggest balls i can think of to face 16 veterans these are men who were pow's these were men who their squad leaders were killed their platoon commanders were killed they were wounded they were never the same again you know they they, every one of these individuals had a story of their own about the germans what the germans did to them and they and they liberated the concentration camps and they clapped for this guy and I, rem- I will not forget, it was the guy's son. So this guy's now 96. So his son behind was behind him, and his grandson was behind him, okay? And I'll, even though they were clapping for Jurgen, I saw the face of the, 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 the son and the grandson. And it was like, holy shit, our dad's finally a hero. Like Our dad's finally respected. And that melted my heart more than everybody was so focused on the veterans, the Americans and the Germans and the media is filming them. And I'm watching the son of this former Nazi, right? Well, you know, I'm not, I mean to label him a Nazi because not everybody was a Nazi, but that's what the world depicts him as. The world right. sees if you him fought as, for the Germans, right. you were a Nazi. That's what period. the world sees you as. Right. Yeah. And I'm watching his son and his grandson say, Finally, we're on a, a like a, a celebrate celebrating side, and it feels good for Papa to be not a um, monster. And so that was really great. And then that I'll, closure must have been 
such a weight lifted off of his shoulders, mm-hmm. but some, but the shame that he's now not passing on to his future generations of the family. Correct. And um, I was watching some of my hardened World War II veterans who I know had been shot, had to recover. I'll just talk. Frank Polo Warsick from Drake at Massachusetts was in the 79th Infantry Division. He was shot through the stomach and shot through the neck during the Battle of Hagenau. And he was in the damn hospital for a year they were, as they were trying to close up his stomach. To this day, he can't even swallow food right, and he's like 95. And when I saw him walking up to the German, putting his arm around him and shaking his hand, saying, you know, pleasure to meet you, and, uh, you know, we're all, uh, he looked at the German newspaper and said, hey, we're all human, man. This is... And that was just really something special, and uh, to see that moment take place, you know, these men who had tried to kill each other at one point now making peace. It's a lesson that maybe younger generations should learn from without having to go through what it took for all of them to get to that point in their 90s to find forgiveness and acceptance. I mean, it's a life lesson that we should all be paying attention to before none of these guys are around to teach it anymore. It was rough because a lot of them have already outlived their spouse or their wife, and they've never gone back. And now, like, you could tell some of them were saying, well, I wish my wife could see this or wish my... Because who knows what demons their wives were dealing with all these years. You know, I interviewed so many veterans who punched their poor wife in their sleep because they were having nightmares. They were just thrashing around. You know, or the beatings they gave their kids. You know, I talked to their... I, their, their kids would come up to me on this trip because their kids are now in their 70s. If, you're, if your dad's in their 90s, you're probably in your 70s, late 60s. And he's like... I never knew why my dad was the way he was, you know, and I, I just want to let you know that my dad was not a nice person growing up. I mean, he beat us. He was a drunk. You know, he's not that way anymore. He's been sober since the 80s, probably, or the 90s. And I just want to thank you for just showing me this, you know. So I was bringing closure between the Germans and the Americans, the Americans and their family members, and then the young generation and veterans I invited who paid their own way just to be part of the moment. So it was friggin' a great therapeutic trip, and I'm hoping to do one smaller version, one more in the fall. Well, it's, I have a lot of these conversations. I mean, I, this is one of the things I love about having a podcast is that I can sit down and have a long conversation, whereas on the radio, it's a little bit harder to do. Oh, yeah, cut off commercials. And, and one of the things that I'm noticing as a trend is that there are a lot of musicians raised by veteran dads. I just a few weeks ago had a conversation with Jacoby Shaddix, the lead singer of Papa Roach, whose dad was a Vietnam veteran who had a problem with alcohol, Mm. who he was very open and honest and candid about talking about the struggles he had with his dad and how his dad's service getting drafted into the military destroyed the family, how he doesn't have the relationship with his dad that he wished that he did. And so this isn't just that 70-something-year-old child of the World War II veteran. This is a, a similar story, to go back to these generational life lessons, that there are generations of people that were raised by Vietnam veterans. There are kids now being raised by veterans of your era that are trying to figure out why it is that their dad or their uncle or their grandfather or their older brother reacts to things the way that they do. The World War, you're right, the World War II generation did a way better job hiding it. Way better. I mean, I talked to, one of my favorite kind of interviews to do are World War II veterans who then became cops. Because that's what I do. And there was no such thing as domestic violence. 
laws back then. If you responded to a call where a guy whacked his wife, you were basically turned to tell to turn the cheek and ignore it and leave. This guy's handling his business. We're out of here. And that's the way they did it. And there was a lot of that going on around because I remember a few World War II veterans who became cops. That's what they were told. That's what they were doing. They would go to a, a veteran's house or someone's house that they knew. And, you know, that's they ignored it. And so there was a lot of stuff that was not perfect with the, with the greatest generation, you know, and that's why I did a lot of discovering of, um, you know, it's just men put in, um, unordinary times did extraordinary things. So, but they also weren't perfect. Right. By, and by by no means, you know, they had, uh, you know, a couple months of training and they were in world war two. They were in the war. So when you make this conscious decision to encapsulate as much of that era onto this rifle and have this personal journey, you make that decision. There's a big difference between making a decision in your head and actually making it happen. So you go from one signature and this idea, how do you then go, okay, I'm going to start? Because this is a lesson for any of us, especially with the challenges we've had in the last 14 months, of taking something, a dream, a wish, a goal, and actually making it happen. What's the first step? Now, um, let me ask you, because so you mean the first step before I meet them or after they sign the rifle? Or- no, how did, you, how did you put the plan in place? You decide, okay, I'm going to get as many of these veterans gotcha. All right. as I can represented on this rifle. Okay. Was the goal always the book or was Never, it just a no. personal journey for you? Personal journey. It was selfish, personal journey. I want a bunch of signatures on my rifle. I must have been 20 or 30 veterans in and I said, whoa, dude, like, why aren't you documenting this? Why aren't you filming this? Why aren't you? I was too afraid to ask them to film them or I figured they'd say, no, I can't meet them. Because my generation of veterans, you're a fucking asshole pussy. If, if you, you get in front of a camera. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to, that's what I felt that I'd be doing to them. And still, a lot of the, you know, some, well, actually, no, you know, you know, it's like they said no their whole lives, but now they know. I never told my story and I'm 95 and I'm going to get it out now. I captured so many people who told their story for the first time. And I know that because I've had associations reach out to me and say, we've never heard of this guy. I'm a, I'm a member of the, you know, the, the 34th Infantry Division. I'm a member of the 87th Association. I'm the president. You know, my father was in the, I'd never heard of, you know, this guy. How did you meet him? How did, how did you, wow, I'd never heard this stuff, you know, because a lot of guys bought, uh, ignored it. Now I think they know, you know, the clock is ticking and I never told anything. And, you know, I have family members who are going to open my book and for the first time find out about their dad's story and, and, and granddad's story. They, t- they tell me it. When I interviewed my, uh, I call him Uncle Froggy, who's my dad's best friend in high school, mm-hmm. Vietnam veteran, Purple Heart recipient. I got, he did my podcast and I got emails from family members of his from across the country who never heard his story, thanking me because he's now in his 70s mm-hmm. for tell for getting him to tell his story because he never told it. Can you imagine that though? Like we're... The Vietnam vets are now in their mid to late 70s. 
See how fast that's creeping up on us? Yeah. So you start interviewing these veterans and asking them to tell your story. I, I didn't actually finish your question. So oh, sorry. No, it's all right. Because it's people asking that all the time. How did you find this person? How'd you do that? So let's look at my uncle for a particular reason. He served with the 34th Infantry Division in Italy when he was killed. At the age of 19. Right. So if I told you right now, find me a 34th Infantry Division World War II veteran, what would you do? Google. <laughs> right. So, Except none of them are on the internet. Right. So even Googling them, you might find a 2008 Veterans Day article from Skokie, Illinois, about Private Joe Smith, who's like the, you know, the, the friggin... Uh, the guy that was in the parade. Yeah, that yeah. And is he still alive? I don't know, you know? So there was that way, right? You could look these guys up, try Yellow Pages, call, cold call them, and they think you're a scam and they hang up the phone. Um, I, I, there was a few times where I... The associations will have after-action reports on their website. So in 2006, a lot of, and maybe earlier, a lot of World War II records became unclassified, declassified, excuse me. And they, and a lot of associations put them on the internet. So you can scroll through what happened on January 2nd, 1944, who was wounded that day, what, what the radio man wrote down that day, and get names. So when I was looking up the 34th Division, I found Carl DeChico got the Silver Star the same day my uncle got killed. So I got to find this guy, Carl. I wonder if he's, I called him up in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Hello, you know, hey, Carl, is the 34th Division? Yeah, you know, I'm like, you know, my uncle was in the war and I'd love to interview. Where are you calling from? I'm like, uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, that liberal state click <gasps> just hung up on me. <laughs> just like that. I said, I tried calling him back again. I go, sir, I'm not a scam. You know, you know. He's like, I've been, I was scammed, and you're a scam, and blah blah blah. So, I'm fucking desperate to meet this guy. Like, he could potentially have answers on what happened to my uncle. He was in the same offensive, the same battle, not far from. So, I took a, I removed a piece of the rifle, piece of wood from the rifle. I attached a note, sir, I am not a scam. I attached photos of all the different men signing the rifle. I'd be honored to have your signature. You know, here's the return postage. I'm a Marine myself. My uncle, I showed a picture of my uncle in uniform, was with your unit. He was killed on the same day you got the Silver Star. I assure you I'm not a scam. And I mailed it, and I said, I may never see that piece of that rifle again. But it was a risk I wasn't taking. A few weeks later, there's a box sitting on my front porch. Signed, Carl DeChico, 34th Infantry Division. I'm sorry, I thought you were a scam. I turned 95 today. Good luck with your project. So... I called him back up again. And she's like, you really are a persistent bastard. Is that what he said to yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, show down, come down and meet me. And I went down and met, met him. And um, he was a serious man. He, I mean, he killed his share of Germans. Um, was you don't get the silver star for selling cookies. Mm -hmm. um, four purple hearts. Four. First time <sighs> I've ever seen a purple heart with three oak leaf clusters on it. He was a replacement maybe right before Rome. No, no. He was at Anzio. At Anzio, he was a replacement. He was buried alive at Anzio. And um, he made it through the whole war, and his story's in my book. When you receive a medal mm -hmm. in the military, and then you receive that medal for the second time or the third time, rather than wearing that medal multiple times, 
it's denoted for anyone that's not familiar with oak leaf clusters or representations that you've received that medal multiple times. So when you're looking at the medals that someone is wearing, if you see things pinned into the actual ribbons, it means they've received that same award multiple times. Four Purple Hearts during one deployment mm-hmm. is insane because he was only deployed for, what, a year and wounded well, let, four times? Let me see. Um, oh, boy. It's it's amazing. You write a book, you would think I would know everything and remember what I wrote. You're remembering, like, I, I, I'll give you credit for not having the entire Second World War memorized, Mr. Biggio. <laughs> I'll give you. You know what's funny? It's like with the, with the author world, I'm like a jack of all trades, master at none, because I wrote about the Pacific, Europe, the Air War. I did, a lot of people would just pick one battle. Yeah. One division to fight. Well, and- you're talking about specific men. I mean, you're you're telling specific men's stories. So it you know, you can't just go, oh, well, I'm not gonna listen to your story, 95-year-old hero, because you weren't in the right campaign that I'm looking for. Right. You just so, want to hear from these guys. So yeah, so he was so Anzio January of forty four. And he was there all the way to they when they reached like Switzerland, they worked their way up to Italy. So that Po Valley, I think, was April forty five, May forty five. So we got four Purple Hearts in six months. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let me see if I can remember them. He was buried alive first of all, buried alive at Anzio. A shell hit the house he was in, collapsed. He tried to keep the other guy alive. They he was teaching him how to pray because the kid didn't know how to pray. He was teaching him how to pray, and the kid ultimately dies. So he got his leg injuries there. He comes back to the front lines uh, right as the unit's taking Rome, and they have to fight up the eastern part of, excuse me, it would be the western part of Italy. Um, And he's wounded, uh, shot through the shoulder in a town called Rosignano. Okay? Then the day he gets the... The day he gets the Silver Star, he takes a round slid by his rib cage while crawling under barbed wire to take out a pillbox. All right. And then the last Purple Heart was a, a bullet or a piece of shrapnel to his shin while in northern Italy. So there's the four. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So you get him to sign the rifle. Mm-hmm. He calls you a persistent bastard, and you go to Pennsylvania. I get, I get, yep, I show up to Pennsylvania. He goes, "Wow, you're a handsome bastard." <laughs> he didn't say that. Swear to God. <laughs> so he went from he went from cussing me out to calling me a handsome bastard. <laughs> and you could you could tell why he didn't want to meet with me. He was in the last stages of his life. I mean, he had a bag that was draining his gallbladder. You know, he's in a nursing home. He's in rough shape. Who the fuck wants guests? Right. Especially someone like, tell me about the war, you know? But, I, I mean, I had to show him I wasn't that guy. I was different. I was a different, ex- I was an exception. Well, especially you know? because he's a veteran that had direct ties to your great uncle. And you were really looking for for some kind of family closure. Right. So, he was closure, but he wasn't the closure. Keep, the story keeps going from there. Um, he did not know my uncle. He did not know my uncle. Um, he was in a different company. Same battle. Same battle. Same offensive. 
the Gothic line, pretty brutal stuff in Italy. You know, it's equivalent to what our Vietnam guys went through. Uphill mud, nowhere to hide. Just up uphill into the machine guns and into the artillery. Um, so the the mission keeps going from there. Now I'm like, I got to get guys in my uncle's company. In the company. Who was on the fucking hill that day in Sept- on September 19th, 1944? Somebody was there. If there's 200 men to a company, I don't believe they're all dead. But, I mean, it's the truth, though. You know, you look at, uh, I think, Easy Company of the 101st Airborne, who they did the miniseries. There's only two men left from that, from Easy Company. Wow. Two. So, yeah, the odds are stacked against me. And Italy was worse, believe it or not. People will get mad at me. Historians might fucking get upset, but tough shit. Italy, uh, if you were... And they were also fighting longer in Italy, too. So I'm not going to compare and contrast who was a better company, who saw more action. But the 34th Red Bull Division saw over 500 days of combat. That's more than units that first saw uh, in, uh, combat in, in uh, Normandy on. Because remember, they were there North Africa first, then to Italy. So what I'm getting at is... B Company of the 135th Regiment changed faces a lot in th- three years compared to just 200 days plus days of combat with a unit that lands in Normandy or jumps into Normandy. And so it was harder to find survivors who were going to be in a particular unit or battle for me rather than Normandy because they just... You, you know how it is. So picture the, a National Guard unit taking their big uh, company photo before they deploy. That, if you went to Italy in 1943, that photo, by the end of the war, changed faces probably 10 times. Right. For replacements. That's what I'm getting at on how hard it was. So you start getting leads. Yes. And you must start, as you're having these conversations, oh, you got to talk to so-and-so. So, yeah. So what what was happening was... I was meeting different World War II veterans trying to find what happened to my uncle, but I didn't want to exclude or ignore their story. So I was getting sidetracked and pulled. Like, hey, I see what you're, you know, Facebook messages. Hey, I see what you're doing with that rifle. My neighbor was in the Battle of the Baldry. Want to come talk to him? Well, I'm not going to say no. And I meet this guy, and I meet this guy from Lemonster, and I meet this guy, and next thing you know, the rifle's almost full, and I still don't know what happened to Andy Biggio, you know? So, yeah, but... But you got to go talk to this guy was basically how I helped solve the the mystery on what happened to my uncle at the last chapter called Finding Andy. So this book, at what point did you go from this personal journey to connect all aspects of the war on this rifle and to solve the mystery of your great uncle for your own personal soul journey to going okay, it's not enough that I'm just documenting these conversations. This needs to be written down and shared. I want to say my Instagram page says it's three years old. So three years ago, I said, why am I not putting this on Facebook or the Instagram or whatever? So I, when I was in Italy, it started, I think. So, all right, so while I'm on this journey meeting 200 World War II veterans... I'm firm at that number. I couldn't believe how many people had never returned to Italy or France. I mean, these are first world countries. These are it's a it's a flight from Boston. It's a it's a six hour flight direct flight to Paris or to Rome. 
why the hell wouldn't you go back to Italy? Doesn't everyone go to Italy? You know what I mean? Like, doesn't everybody family want to try to go to Italy at some point? But I was thinking about the carnage they had saw is making them not go revisit one of the most beautiful countries in the world. No, you, you don't want to go see the Eiffel Tower? I know you were here, you know, 75 years ago, but you don't want to go see it now? Like, so a lot of veterans, Carl DeChico, I believe his family planned an Italy vacation without him. Al Bucciarelli, who I just got off the phone with, lost his leg at Monte Cassino. He never went back to Italy. I think his family went without him. Other guys hadn't been back to France. Another, and, and so I was realizing so many people had never been back to Europe. I said, well, fuck, why don't I just, like, bring them back? Why don't I do it? I run the Boston Wounded Vet Run. People go deep in their pockets for my Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. What will they do if I ask them, let's raise some money for some World War II vets? And it worked. $75,000 I brought. Um, seven, 16 World War II veterans to Belgium and Luxembourg and France. And then the Italy mission was straight derived. It was, I think, $5,000 I took out of the wounded vet run because, hello, Al lost his leg in Italy. He meets the bylaws of my organization. He's a severely wounded veteran. So we funded him and his wife and a daughter. And, of course, me, I, can't, I went... Um, and brought him back to Italy in the vicinity where he lost his leg 75 years before. Not only did he lose his leg, but his squad leader got killed in the same explosion. He only knew his squad leader's name is Ray because the guy had just came off R&R duty. He was in charge of him. Ray was a corporal. Al was a PFC. They were, they were wiremen. They were, you know, they were part of headquarters company. They would lay communications wire. Well, they're out in this field one day close to a river when um, this gun called Anzio Annie, which was a railway gun. It was a, a cannon on a railway. I have no idea what size the shell it lobbed, but it could lob around, from what I understand, 30 miles. And, it, <sighs> yeah, it fell short and, boom, landed when they were there laying wire. And when the medics ran over to Al, they said, who the hell were you with? Because there was no trace of Ray. Ray's blood and brains and guts were all over Al. That's why they wanted to know who he was with, because you have all this shit on, all this matter on you. Who the hell were you with? Al lost his leg. They amputated his leg. He's 96 years old, still walks in a prosthetic leg. So when I w went to go interview him, I brought one of the wounded veteran honorees purposely to show them, hey, look at this. You're going to live a long life just like this guy is, you know? Well, look at what the veterans did to the survivors of the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. They were the first people to I'm, go to the hospital yep, to was, show them. I was called by somebody uh, back then, 2013, to hit up the wounded veterans. I forget who it was, what, what group or person was running it, but I was definitely uh, approached to get help that. So I remember, yeah. And it does lead by example. I mean, to be someone that's wrestling with that kind of a catastrophic injury from a post-9-11 battle and to think I'm going to struggle the rest of my life. My life is never going to have meaning, it, you know, and then to meet a guy that's 96 years old that, that has lived a full life mm -hmm. in spite of that injury. And he that, looks right at my friend, Bryant Johnston, who lost his leg in Fallujah and goes, because I was like, Al, wow. I'm like, you never, you don't need a wheelchair. You don't want a wheelchair. He looks at Brian and goes, Hey Brian, do you ever want to be in a wheelchair? And he, Brian says no to him. And at that moment, I was now second 
the mission was like me and my rifle got signed, but I was second now. It was I wanted them two to talk, them two to bond because it was about them at that moment. You know, I'll 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 I don't know what it's like to be an amputee and the way they were looking at each other and Brian, you could just tell by the look on his face, he was motivated as hell talking to this 95-year-old man who still walks on a prosthetic leg who has seen seven generations of prosthesis evolution. I know. Can you imagine the the rudimentary prosthetic he was issued the after his injury? Piece of wood he was given, but yeah. And, and what's capable, like what technology has made possible now? Right. So we're in Italy. He just remembers his squad leader's name is Ray. So... There is a 50-50 chance, pretty much, that if you were killed in World War II, you either stayed there and you were buried where you lay, or your family in 1947 or 1948 was, I think 47, they were given, uh, the government sent them a letter that said, hey, we will fund the cost if you want your son or daughter to come home. You know, um, My family opted to have Andy Biggio brought back home, and then they buried him locally. Well... I looked at the Rome National American Cemetery for guys who were killed in that area. I went through all the rays. Just think, I'm like, we're in Italy. We have no idea what this guy Ray. I went through all the rays and Raymonds, which were about 14, I think, of the 8,000 guys that were buried there. Those numbers could be off, everybody, so don't go crazy. I think there's like 8,000 people buried in Rome Cemetery. Um, now, I visited many foreign cemetery, so that number could be the Normandy one, and I get that confused, but there was about 13 Ray and Raymonds, and then I had to go, okay, well, what was Al's division, the 3rd Infantry Division, so that brought me down to, like, four Rays, and then it was like, okay, regiment, you know, and then it brought me down to, like, two Rays, well, which Ray do you think it was? The same, the, the date on the tombstone was the date Al lost his leg. Because Al will always remember that November 12th, 1943, he lost his leg. And his squally was killed that day. So there it was, Ray. Um, oh, bog. His last name escapes me right now. Ray Ray James from Kentucky. Ray Ray James. R-A-Y. Not Ray. It was Ray James from Kentucky. So I found it. I'm, I'm at dinner the night before doing this on my phone. I'm like, you got Headquarters Company, 3rd Infantry Division, killed November 12th, 1943, Ray. This is no. It's it's the guy. It's him. So we had already planned the cemetery part of our trip anyway. So Ray, I mean, uh, Al has no idea. So we're going through the cemetery. We're looking at the wall of the missing in action. We're looking at uh, this Medal of Honor recipient's grave. And I go, hey, Al, come here. Come look at that. And he's like, you know what? What are you talking about? Go look at that. I go. And I just said, it's your squad leader. And then I just backpedaled away. And I gave it, and this is all on film, of course. And I gave him his moment. And he's got his prosthetic leg on. He's looking at Ray James's white cross grave for the first time in 75 years. And he started to lose his balance. And he, and he grabbed onto the, the cross, you know, the, the tombstone to hold it. And I went up to him and I just gave him a big, big hug and... Of course, he was crying and everything like that. And he's like, you're right. It, he's like, Ray James from Kentucky. That's him. I forgot he was from Kentucky. And uh, it was just a, a great moment. So it was uh, fantastic. And I and I finally, right then and there, I said, you know what? I finally found what I'm searching for. Like, I'm done. 
this mission. It's over. You know what I mean, <laughs> of course, it wasn't actually over. I went and got like a hundred more signatures after that. But it was it was like whatever I was chasing, though, was definitely fulfilled there. And the rest has just been bonus material for me and for social media and, and stuff like that. Well, one of the most striking images for me was taking a photo of one of these World War II veterans standing in a foxhole they dug. Mm, yeah. That it, the foxhole is still an indentation in the earth. Yep. They're walking the same battlegrounds they fought on. And to see this old, frail man stand in a place where the earth is still scarred from when he was there the last time. Yeah. And there's a lot of foxholes still left. There's a lot of foxholes. I've seen them. Um, the most popular ones, the, there's, a, there's a lot of foxholes left uh, over there. The most popular one, um, the most popular ones are... The 101st Airborne, um, they call them the Boy Jacks foxholes in uh, the Bastogne area because they were made famous for that fa um, band of brothers, you know, the winter episodes where they're freezing in those foxholes. So a lot of people go there and are jumping into those foxholes. So they stay kind of dug, you know, they stay open and reenactors go there and whatever. So that those exact spots stay there. But I've seen foxholes of other divisions that aren't highly tourist attractions and you can see they're just like little indents um italy included tell me the story about what it's like for the people in belgium on these trips and how the american veterans are viewed overseas in these towns i will ask anybody if your local football team you know, the Patriots, the Giants. If you've ever worn, won a national championship and have been to your celebratory parade after the Super Bowl, that's what it's like bringing World War II veterans to these villages and towns. They are lined up six or seven deep to, to get a view of these veterans. People are holding their grandkids up above the crowd so that they can see a live World War II veteran. That's crazy. I mean, that's just... So you take these veterans over there, mm -hmm. and the cities and towns know that, that they're, they're coming. coming. Yeah. And so they roll out the red carpet Big for time. these unassuming men that we would pass at the drugstore selling poppies. And we still do every day. Even in the, not just the drugstore, but some of them you see them walking around the mall just to get their exercise. Or I know plenty of World War II vets who go out and just go to Stop and Shop just to walk the aisles to get their feet going. And um, but and these I, are villages and places and countries that were at a very young age who liberated them and who are the heroes. Okay, you would not get this type of reception for a sports athlete in these villages in these particular towns. Now, I'm sure they're bigger cities or, you know, whatever. They, life goes on because I've been there. I've been to Rome with... I was in Rome with two World War II veterans and they have that on their hats and, nope, it's life as usual. People are just going. But then I go to these smaller villages like Bast uh, Bastogne area, little French villages and Holland and it's like the Beatles coming. Pretty awesome. How are the veterans handling that kind of attention? They couldn't believe it. They haven't stopped talking about it. They cried. Some of them cried. Most of them could not. They still to this day can't stop talking about it. I'm worried the whole trip. Are they comfortable? Uh, 
you know, did he eat enough? Is he cold? Get him out of the rain. I don't want him getting sick. You know, uh, it's this, this restaurants are not handicap friendly. We're going to have to get them out of the wheelchairs and squeeze them through the door and squeeze them through the... And the veteran said, because we took 16, 10 had never returned. Six had been back once before, like 1994 was a big... 94, 95 were big 50th anniversary years over there. So guys went for the first time ever... One veteran I took, I took him specifically because he was 10th Armored Division, the same as my grandfather on my mother's side. He had been back 20 times. He said, Andy, I'm not just saying this. Of the 19 times I've been back, this was by far the best time. And so I'll take his word for it. Yeah. The stories have got to be so insane for you to be told these for the first time in a lot of cases, but also as a warfighter yourself, are there are there examples of stories where you were sitting there because you're now an interviewer, which mm-hmm. is not what you're used to. This is normally, this is something that I would be used to is asking someone else questions. And now you're sitting there asking questions of someone else. What stories set you back in your chair and you were like, yep. I, I don't even know what to it, say it to was, you? It was actually one that was real recently. Um, man, I'd have to go through my the names on the rifle. But we were talking about body parts and dead bodies and the sound of a dead body hitting the ground. And and I, I could totally... I was getting a little... Um, um, you know, emotional and I could just tell, and we were kind of sharing a moment cause I'm like, yep, it, I guess you're right. I mean, you're 95, so it never leaves you. So it's, how do you live with it? And, um, and I talk a little bit about that experience in my book. Um, and it, it was an incident that, uh, what, what happened to some Afghan police and he, I remember him the way we, I, I, I wish I could remember who it was. It might've been a medic, that I interviewed. Um, I think it was Mike Linquata from Gloucester, Massachusetts, 35th Infantry Division. It was him. And we were, and he was talking about, um, you know, bodies without limbs and trying to stop the bleeding and, and the dead, the dead and, and the, what a, a body looks like after explosion and I, I could totally relate to that, and, and I totally understood every word he was saying, you know. And so um, we shared a moment there, and it was like, it was an awesome moment, uh, an awesome bond between young veteran and old veteran for sure. Is there a story from a veteran that you, I mean, four Purple Hearts in six months, like can you give me some more examples of stories of, these amazing men you write about in the book that are these superhero level so, examples of bravery and selflessness. You know, I, I've, I've, you know, I, I made the comment, oh, you know, sometimes the greatest generation wasn't, wasn't that great. And that's, that's a quote from a man who saw carnage in Okinawa, right? So at the end of the day, we know the greatest generation is the greatest generation. Their stories are unmatched. People write books and movies for lifetimes over real-life events that happened in World War II. Sets of brothers being killed. Uh, Medal of Honor recipients. Um, you know, just like their stories are just completely unmatched. You can't make them up. And so 
I had to pick 22 of the best stories for the book of these 200 men I interviewed. How do you make that decision? Yeah, it's tough. Um, so I, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a he's been on my mind lately, and I realized I just made a mistake with his chapter. Oh, my God. I, I, I lost sleep last night over it, actually. I don't know how it happened, but this guy was with the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Who are they? They were the Japanese Americans allowed to f- serve in the U.S. Army. So they're all segregated. Let's put all the Japanese Americans in one unit. We'll let them fight in Italy. We don't want to send them to Pacific. We we don't want anyone to confuse them with the enemy. We don't want... Um, we still don't know what allegiance they're going to have with the enemy. This was all real live curiosity because Japanese Americans in 1941-42 were annexed, cut out. Xed from the military. They were not allowed to join. They were considered enemy aliens. And when I wrote about loss in Sakai from uh, Morgan Hill, California, he tried to enlist with all of his white f- friends, and they were like, you know, you're enemy alien. You're not allowed to. So they stamped enemy alien. He wasn't allowed to join. Now, everyone, all the other Japanese uh, Americans are now being put in internment camps. His family's on the risk of being put in an internment camp. I think they, his family luckily found a church, something in Colorado that would take them. So they were getting ready to get out there. But the government finally, um, the I think it was the anti-Japanese or anti-defamation league, had some pull in Congress. Congress told the military, let's give these guys a, a chance. And they formed the 100th Battalion slash also the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. These were Japanese-Americans who were from mostly California and Hawaii and were um, now they had to prove themselves. So Lawson lands in Italy somewhere, I think around June of 44. And then it's just intense combat. He's another one, three purple hearts, two bronze stars. And it was his story. They fought all the way up Italy. Then they took the 442nd out of Italy and put them in lower France. And they're in Lower Flance, and all these generals are in a rush. Everyone wants to be the first general to get to Germany. They want to be the first general to cross the Rhine, the first general to sack Berlin. It was the, They were fucking killing young, poor kids from the projects, from all over walks of life, to be the glory hound general. They were. They were, they were this one uh, unit from the 36th Infantry Division. They had uh, a battalion... Um, so far ahead, okay, that they ended up getting trapped in the Vosges Mountains in, in France, okay? Now, the Germans have surrounded this battalion. This battalion becomes known as the Lost Battalion because they got trapped. They're getting killed. Uh, efforts to try to shell them supplies. They end up killing their own guys. It, it becomes a complete mess, and they send in the Japanese-Americans to go get them. Uh, I believe there was something less than two hundred. You know, like I said, I forget all statistics. It's hard to remember numbers, but there was only there was like less than two hundred men left of that battalion, and the Japanese Americans lost two hundred men to to get them where they were. And when he describes being in in these the Vosges Mountains and getting shelled by the Germans, the trees were so big that when they would shell and fall, he watched his friends get crushed by these trees that were falling because they were so big. And he got wounded wicked bad with a piece of shrapnel through his his ribs and out his lower back. And that was his third Purple Heart at that time. And now, so here's a guy, Japanese-American, sitting with me, telling me his story. He never felt sorry for himself. 
He was so proud to be a member of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Here I was at their 75th anniversary, I believe, 74th anniversary in Las Vegas at some hotel. Uh, I was at the California Hotel in Old Vegas. And these guys, these old Japanese-American guys are having their reunion. And the bathtub's full of beer. And there's ancestors and nephews and grandkids of people who were in that division there. You know, their grandpa might not be alive anymore, but they're all there proud to be part of that. They went on to be the most decorated infantry regiment of all of World War II, the Japanese-Americans, after what they had to go through. So Lawson, I think about him daily. He's one of my favorite guys. He passed away. Oh, a year or two ago, um, and I fucked up his chapter. I put he was in Company um, L when he was in Company E. Um, I don't know how I did that. I don't know if it was a publisher's accident or what, but I, re- I already reached out to his family. I said, sorry, the, you know, I, I put the, the company's wrong. We're going to fix it on the next, re- you know, reprints and next editions. But You know what's amazing? You talk about this unit of Japanese-Americans that were – villainized at home mm-hmm. and still wanted to serve the country yep. that made them an enemy on their own soil. Yeah. And then you hear the stories about the red tail pilots, mm-hmm. Tuskegee, yep. the, the code talkers, mm-hmm. and they are all these groups of people marginalized by the country that they were serving Yeah, and showing such selflessness right. and bravery in the face of international evil, but evil at home. Yeah, I have a better one than that. I mean, so basically I wanted it. Hello, I was. I ended up with 150 Caucasians on this rifle. I go, well, let's, I got to represent, make this rifle a little diverse. I got to, I know there was these other units that fought. Now you got to think. The, the number of World War II veterans has dwindled down to n- almost nothing. Now I'm going to try to find these rear segregated units that saw combat. Hello, very hard. And again, do they want to talk to you? Mm-hmm. So I saw Lawson Sakai, um, Japanese-American. I had a, a Tuskegee Airman in Boston. He didn't really see any action. He was paperwork guy. Still proud to have him on the rifle. But I was really missing a, a, like a... I wanted to show a minority sacrifice in World War II, and I was missing it. Um, the rifle's full. I found this guy. He's a hidden gem. He is the last that we know of, the last member of the 761st Tank Battalion, also known as, and proudly they call themselves, Patton's Panthers. They were the first all-black tank unit to see action in World War II. First all-black t- tank unit ever. Okay. I find an article from Gulf, I always get Gulf Oil and Gulf uh, Energy confused down there, down in Alabama. An article about a guy who's, who, he highlighted his father in the Gulf News pamphlet, monthly news outlet about his dad serving in the 761st Tank Battalion. So, of course, I looked the guy up in the white pages, I sent him a letter and I call him. He said, yeah, sure, come down. Well, I had to go to Bucks, Alabama. Bucks, B-U-C-K-S, Alabama, to find this guy. He had holes in both of his forearms from where the shrapnel hit him, uh, burned in holes on his lower leg. He was hit with a German bazooka. His tank was destroyed. His gunner and his commander were, were killed and injured. And this guy, 
is an amazing rare find, very rare. And this is how his story goes. The guy is a tank gunner, okay, supporting an all-white infantry unit who didn't, they didn't even want them. They're like, great, we got stuck with the black tankers. These are, this is the Yankee division, the 26th, all kids from Boston. The 26th Infantry Division gets their first tank battalion assigned to them to push into the town of Morville, France, and the areas around Nancy, France, okay? And they get stuck with the, the blacks, the N-words. You know, they were getting called, like, great. The, the story turns in. They end up, both sides end up fighting and dying for each other. I mean, you're watching racism get destroyed right here in these little villages of Morville in and around Nancy, France. White White infantry guys are running over to rescue out tankers out of the burning tanks. Tankers are destroying houses with German machine guns to get infantry that's pinned down. You're you're watching. You, then they finally realize, like, you know, why do I hate this black guy for no reason? You know, this is like a big story that was happening. So Curtis uh, gets uh, um, Robert is his real name. I call him Curtis because Curtis is his middle name, but. He's one of the tanks leading into this town, and a German bazooka pierces his tank, knocks out the eyeball of the tank driver, uh, kills the commander, and then he's severely burned and gets rescued, and that's it. So he's in this tent after being medically evacuated. The story goes on, you know, I, I can't... In this cr- now, now, this is where it gets really, really sad, and it, and it battles me. So I'm a police officer, and now... I am now thrusted into the Black Lives Matter movement, protests, rioting, and I really feel horrible. For the first time in my life this past year, I didn't enjoy putting on my police uniform. It was a blow to my career. It was a blow to my self-esteem. I couldn't believe the shit that went down in Minneapolis. I mean, I mean, cops around the country could not believe their eyes what they witnessed. That That was just a disgrace. I was not proud to put on my uniform. It was horrible. Then to boot protests and rioting. Okay, and well, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about the World War Two veterans coming home with all of the incidents of domestic violence and people were told to turn a blind eye. Yeah, we're starting to realize now Mm -hmm. that people have been turning a blind eye to a lot of things Mm -hmm. that they should not be turning a blind eye. to. So this is complicated stuff. Right. Very complicated. So I said I looked at my rifle and I said, I got to go out there and talk to it. And understand a little bit better. And why not start with a guy who helped was before the civil rights movement? Let's see how bad life was before that. So I meet, I meet, I fly down to, and I meet Robert Curtis Andrew. And I'm sitting in front of a man who was not allowed to even sit in the same tent as a white soldier, eat from the same chow hall as a white soldier, drink from the same water spigot, wasn't allowed to vote. I'm seeing. I'm meeting a guy who was before all of it. Okay, and do you accept me? You know, in in my head, I'm saying that I am a white police officer right now in 2021. Are you accept me in your home? You know, and so of course he did. Right away, you know, he's a they're Christian man, religious man, lovable man, and we had the interview for days. I mean, it was just. So he gets wounded. Let's fast uh, fast forward back to uh, rewind back to my. He gets wounded. He's placed in a tent with all white soldiers. Okay. When you're wounded, there's no segregation at that point. And a colonel comes in. He's going around to each white soldier. Good job, bro. You know, good job giving him his purple heart. You know what happened to you? Or, you know, America's very proud of you. And he gets to look at Robert Curtis Andrew, who had just been blown up by a bazooka, and goes, 
What happened to you, boy? You you trip over a bazooka? You know. That's what, that was his first greeting by a, uh, a white officer. What happened to you? Did you trip over a bazooka? And he was wounded by a German shell that hit his tank. <clears throat> so hearing uh, Robert say that story to me was was hard was horrible here's a guy who just been almost burned alive um in a sherman tank by a german in the battle protecting white infantrymen getting treated like that and it gets worse he gets to memphis to a medical hospital in memphis and the guys are given you know convalescent leave to go out into town and to do whatever or go home and again he is in I believe he has one arm in a cast, one arm in a bandage. He's on crutches, his legs in a cast, and he's at the train station. And some asshole civilian says, "What are you doing waiting here? You all wait in the back," and forces him to wait on the other side of the of the train tracks. Oh, and calls him in the N word, of course. And he said, "I looked down at my arms, and I looked down at my leg, and I said, God, did I really get these injuries for these people?'" And if I was on that train platform, you could forget what I would do to that motherfucker, you know? Uh, and I mean it, me as a white bystander, if I ever, you know, here's some civilian piece of shit who probably never even served in the military telling a black guy, black soldier with his two arms in a cast and a leg in a bandage on crutches to go wait in the back. You know, and so I was proud to have... So damn proud to have Robert Andrew. And guess what? He's never been back to France. So I am going to try to do that. And that whole fucking town is going to come out and treat him like gold. I got something planned for him if this COVID shit goes away. It's unbelievable to me what a veteran like that has had to live through. During that deployment and war mm-hmm. and what his country has put him through upon returning home. Right. And then we go back to say, like, this is the greatest uh, generation. Up you know? until right now, mm-hmm. we're still going through it. The life and the things that that man has seen. And then, like you said, to be a law enforcement officer and to be welcome in his home. And he's now telling you his life story. The level of forgiveness in that man's heart is something that we should all be trying to figure out how to get I there. I hate that he lives so far away from me because I'd be at his house every day. And at the same time, I'm not trying to tell the whole world about him just yet because I don't want his, inv- his privacy invaded. Um, there are people foaming at the mouth for the veterans I met to sign memorabilia, to do this. And, and, I, and I get it. Like Some guys just want to meet a World War II veteran, but I can't do this to them. They, a lot of them want privacy. They're meeting me because I am a veteran. They know what I'm about. They know what I'm doing. I took time to write them letters and show them photos of what I'm doing, you know. Um, but uh, Well, I'm telling you right now, I mean, obviously, COVID has made everything more complicated. Mm-hmm. I remember when you went on that first trip two, overseas. Yeah, that was like, what? That'll be two years in December. And I wanted to go so bad. Yeah. And things at WAF were crazy. We were moving the studio. It, life was nuts. Yeah. We're going to do it again. Yeah. And to. I, 
you were looking for volunteers to escort these veterans mm-hmm. and looking for people to go, and I wanted to go so bad. So I'm just telling you now that I want to help in any way that I can because I know how pressed you are to make these trips happen this before is, these guys are gone. This is, mock my words, the last time I will bring men at this age over there because it's just, it sucks the life out of them. Going through the airport. It, and it going through the airport, doing all the walking, the luggage, you know, we try to do everything for them, but it's still a lot getting on off a coach bus at that age. And not even that. It, the time emo- changes, it, the yeah. emotional toll. The emotional toll is the worst, is the worst one. I, I've taken men who I meet every Sunday for coffee, World War II veterans, and I brought them to back to Belgium and Normandy, and they're like, you're like waving your hand in front of their face, and they're just sucked. They're just not them. Because I the memories... Well, imagine what it would be like for you 50 years from now, 40 years from now. I know what it'll be like. I'm going to weep like a baby if, if you know, um, and that's another conversation. But I had one guy from the 17th Airborne Division. He had never been back to Belgium. And he was fucked. He didn't crack a smile the whole trip. Everyone else is laughing and cheering and drinking. And he didn't crack a smile the whole trip. He's just looking out the window of the bus. At one time he puked on the floor outside of the bus. And he said, I know you guys are all having a good time, but um, I'm, I don't have a lot of good, pleasant thoughts right now. You know, it says something along the lines of that and totally respect him. I went back and I looked up our hotel. I was looking at a picture of our hotel and we were, we were at a hotel in the town of, uh, La Roche, Belgium. And I I came across a photo. I said, that looks like the fucking town we stayed in. And it said, La Roche, Belgium, liberated by 17th Airborne Division. It showed bombed out houses. And we were staying in the hotel in the town he liberated, and he didn't even tell me. He didn't even tell me this is... This is, this is where I was. This is where I was. I fucked up, and I literally picked... I'm getting goosebumps. I picked the town... They fought and liberated, and I we didn't even walk around the town. Be like, nobody's oh. looking at it out the windows. Out the window, because there was what gave it away is there was an old castle on a hill, uh, f- across from our hotel. In the photo from 1944 to 2019 was identical with that castle, medieval like looking castle, bombed out, still in the, it was still up there. Yep, Bob it, Bob White. It's unbelievable. So you, you, you document all of these stories. You decide, okay, this is going to be a book, and you have to decide whose stories you're going to tell in the book. Were you going to write the book whether or not it got published? Oh, yeah. I said I'm going to self-publish because that was like the way to go. A lot of people were saying to do that. You'll get all the money back because I put probably um, – I, in five years, I would say I put 70 grand into this journey. Well, yeah, because all years. of your all of your trips. Oh yeah, to when I go away, these guys, it's a thousand bucks gone, right? Thousand dollars every time. So, do look at all the out of state veterans on my rifle. Thousand bucks, thousand bucks, thousand bucks out of my own pocket, and it's well worth it. Well, I want to make my money back. That's all I want to do. You know, someone the other day left a comment on my Facebook. Are you donating the proceeds to uh, charity or to veterans? They weren't a fr- they weren't even friends with me on Facebook, but the the post was public. So, like, are are you donating the the, the proceeds to charity and I was like do you know me 
Uh, I've only been working for free for 11 years, like doing this <laughs> fucking shit. I go and, and not anymore, but I got published on my first try. So the the publisher, you buy, you buy the book from the publisher, they issue me royalties. So eventually I'll make my money back. Nobody, unless you write like a crazy book from, you know, like Fifty Shades of Grey or Harry Potter, nobody really becomes multimillionaires off of books, You're, which the goal is your book needs to go to TV or movie. That's where you then cash in, you know. So, and even then, I, I would want my, the reason why I would want my book to go TV and movies, because that is really the big influence the silver screen has on younger generations to help you learn about sacrifice. I was very influenced by Saving Private Ryan, very influenced by Band of Brothers, um, go on to other war movies, and that's, and, and same thing from my, my, you know, my father and my uncles, they watched uh, The Bridge Over the River Kwai or The Longest Day, and that's what really influenced them, because we all don't think about it. How many people actually sit there and read a book? Not a lot. Well, um, I mean, you, you look at some of those movies, I mean, especially coming up on Memorial Day weekend, mm-hmm. and all of the movie channels on television are going to be the Saving Private Ryans and... Mm-hmm. You know, all of the Hacksaw Ridge and all yeah. of these stories about these amazing real life heroes in some instances and and fictionalized characters telling real stories in other instances. But how else are most of us ever going to learn about these men who would be completely unknown otherwise right and right now what's the big thing everything is netflix and amazon prime and hulu that's it right now so if my book can make it there and you can and that that 18 year old kid 21 year old kid just bumming on his couch on a saturday night or a friday night and they sees this amazing you know mini series the rifle and each episode is a different person who signed the rifle then does it give you a different perspective now that you have sons? What is that experience like for the work that you do now? Because um, your kids are young. So this is a new, you were on this journey before you were a dad. Yes, I was. How does that change it for you? I am, it changed it now because now there's two, there's two prongs to that. One is I got to finish up because my kids and my family deserve all my attention not going off for three or four days and trying to get a rifle signed. I got to be there for my kids. It, it, I am at the end. This is the end. Um, and the other thing was, I, after meeting so many kids and grandkids who were left in the dark, I'm not going to do that to my kids. So I'm also slowly leaving uh, a trail that they can follow and be able to look up stuff. They're going to be able to listen to this podcast one day. You know what I mean? And, and here then, like, I didn't know that about my dad. I didn't know that about the trip he took the veterans on. So um, I am definitely setting them a foundation so that they can build off. And even if they ever want to do their own research one day or get into this kind of stuff, then they can easily take notes and study, you know, um, because a lot of us, a lot of grandkids and great-grandkids and kids were left in the dark with the World War II generation. And I don't want that to happen if someone looks into Iraq or what. Af, you know, the Marines did in Afghanistan, that kind of thing. My grandfather passed away in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, served in World War II in Korea in the Navy. His dad yep. was a private in World War One. 
we always knew military family ran on that uh, or military service ran on that side of the family and having that regret of not hearing our grandfather's stories from him and trying to do research oh it's painful one of the things my sister and I did and and you know as my mom's generation now is getting older and we don't want these stories and the family lineage to be lost in the sands of time mm-hmm. my sister and I started doing family genealogy during yeah. the lockdown Everyone because we've did. yeah because we've had the time sure. right we've been able to go back 13 generations to 1670 and we found our 13 times great grandfather who served on the Mayflower on no we we (laughs) found a relative who served under General George Washington in 1779 1779 yeah in Massachusetts wow and then probably the 26th division but then Probably. Or the 101 Regiment. or what, You know, I know they have the oldest battle streamers, so. And then served a year later in West Point in 1780 and fell off a horse and broke his leg and was discharged and sent home. Are you getting compensation for that? Now where's your, <laughs> let's put in a VA claim. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I bring this stuff up is people are going to hear this podcast that are going to have their own great uncle Andy Biggio. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they might not have the benefit of military service themselves like you to have a basic understanding of the functions of the military. I see it every day. If someone is listening to this and is like, you know what? I do not want my family's story to be lost. What advice would you give them about where to start documenting this and to start researching their own family story? I get these Instagram messages and Facebook messages weekly. It goes a little like this. Have you met anybody with the 26th Division? My grandpa, George Smith, was with them, the 101 Regiment. Do you ever meet anybody with them? Do you know anybody with them? And and sometimes and a lot of times I'll say yeah actually I do know I met a guy from that regiment. Can you ask him if he knows George Smith? And you know obviously you know, either the veteran has passed away or I'm, I'm it's very unlikely he's going to know a guy from another company. The replacements came in, you know, the best advice I can give them is, and again, we're talking COVID, but you are able as a kin, okay, as a relative family member with the Freedom of Inf- Information Act to look up your grandpa or great uncle's service records from the National Archives. A lot of people don't, Never even heard of the National Archives. You can request, fill out an online application, check off the check mark, family history, what your reason is, and why you want Private Joe Smith's records, and you can get some information and some answers back. If you find, if you, the simple thing is a lot of our regular people don't even know what grandpa, what division their grandpa was in. Well, that's easy. Look up the 34th Infantry Division on Wikipedia, and you can get a good idea of what your grandpa went through. You know, that's that's the easy question. I mean, the easy answer. But if you want to get down to the particulars, you have your grandfather's date of, or your great uncle's date of birth, his social security number, where he where he grew up, his address. You can get personal records from them if they weren't destroyed in the fire in the 1970s or whenever that happened. But now, so. for for people that aren't familiar with the military, the document that you got 
when you got out of the military is called a DD-214. Right, discharge papers, yep. That is your service record. And that basically has everything. It has your awards. It has all of that. Yep. The process that you're talking about... Is to request that. ...is that you can get your family members DD-214s. That's right. Which will show where they were. Mm-hmm. It will show the medals and awards and commendations that they received. Yep. And that document will answer a lot of questions and shine a lot of light on the fact that you are probably related to a war hero and you didn't even know. Correct. And that's why I think I'm going to try to find some USS Biloxi veterans or veteran to try to invite to my book launch in August for you. So That my grandfather <clears throat> was an RM2. He was a radio operator. Mm-hmm. I believe, if my research is correct, that the Biloxi was lending support to the Marines on Iwo Jima. And it was a very powerful day for me Mm -hmm. to be at the Boston Wounded Vet Run and to meet a Navajo code talker. And when he said that he was on the beaches of Iwo Jima sending code Mm -hmm. to the ships in the water, I had this immense feeling of he could have been relaying messages because the way that those code talkers from his, I learned so much from his talk that day that they would speak the Navajo code to the ship where a Navajo would decode it and then would decode it for the Navy radio operators who would then transcribe it. My grandfather could have been that guy. Without a doubt. And I asked him that day whose name escapes me and you need Mm -hmm. to help me with his name. Peter MacDonald. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... I said, you know, if my grandfather were alive and knew I was talking to you right now, I think he would be very proud. And do you mind if I hugged you? Mm -hmm. And he was incredibly taken aback by that. But I felt this urge to want to hug this man. Sure. Because it was such a tie back to my... I'm getting teary-eyed just talking about it. Because my grandfather never told us anything. I know the fulfillment you had. That's why, even though that guy had been brought back to uh, Belgium 20 times, he was in the 10th Armored Division. I wanted a 10th Armored Division guy back with me. Right. And just because he had been back 20 times, that's that's well and fine, but the Belgian civilians and the Belgian grandkids deserve to see him too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, it was just... That was the reason why I brought the 10th Army guy who had been back 19 times before my 20th time, you know, and um, <clears throat> because it's just I needed a little self-fulfillment, and so did the, the Belgian civilians. You know, if I if your grandfather was still alive, because there were, believe it or not, there, there's Pacific veterans who go to Normandy because they're not, they're not, a Pacific veteran's not going to go to, I mean, they will, but there's nothing to see on Iwo Jima or, Sai, you know, Saipan. It's jungle rot disease, you know, going back to Peleliu, okay, you see a couple of, but there's no way you can sit down and have like dinner. You know, it's not a, like you said, first world country. 
So a lot of veterans will go back to France and Normandy, but there's just, there's not a whole lot to go back to the Pacific, or at least it takes like, you know, what, 15 hours to get over to that side of the world. Then you get there, you see what you saw, which is an empty island for the most part, and then you're done. But in France, you know, you, there's a lot more to do. So what I was getting at was even Pacific veterans, let's say your grandfather was still alive and he served in the Pacific, they would still treat him like that in France. They would still treat him like that because he helped end the war. Germany and Japan were on the same side. You helped defeat the Axis powers. They'll still want his, even though he's on the USS Biloxi in the Pacific, they still want his his signature on their jacket, on their on their arm. Come drink in my a restaurant. You know, come in my restaurant. You, we won't charge the veterans. We just want you to sit in our restaurant and get a photo and say veterans been here. You know, that's just how they are over there. So. It's unbelievable how stupid we are as a country to mm-hmm. not value our veterans the way that, that people in foreign nations value their sacrifice. I know. Because we don't know what it's like to be under Nazi occupation with heroes hopefully to come fall out of the sky or come by the beaches to rescue us. Those, if you were 10 years old or 9 years old watching the paratroopers come down in Holland, you're, however you old, you know, add plus 77, 76 years, whatever, you're still now teaching your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids that story of who came to liberate you. And the teachers and the education system does that over there. And the, the king of Belgium does it. And the, you know, so. It's amazing. Mm. So let's talk about getting the book. It's yep. called The Rifle. And it's available now for pre-order, right? Yep. So um, you can pre-order it now. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, Target. Um, my website, which is theworldwar2rifle.com, but you know, whatever Amazon works for a lot all of all the links will be in the show notes of the podcast too, to make it easy. Yeah. You can pre-order it. I think it's something like 23, 25 bucks and, um, it'll be at your house June 1st and it is 22 of these stories of men I've met with my infamous rifle and, um, the rifle itself will one day be on display in a museum and this is your chance to own a piece of this cool story and uh if it does make it to tv or movies then you know then everybody's gonna want it that's how it goes um normally when we do these interviews on the podcast i mean the mistress carrie podcast i call it a rock lifestyle podcast and the way that all of the military stories we tell here fits into all of that is that it's a mentality, it is a lifestyle, and that music is always woven into the story. Whether it was my Uncle Froggy in Vietnam or Jonathan Hill's story, you know, um, in the mountains of Afghanistan and the outpost. Right. It There's always music in there. Mm-hmm. Did any of the veterans talk about the music of the time? Did yes. Did they talk about that part of their memory? When I was going through my Uncle Andy's last letters home, okay, they got really, really sad quick. He started off as a grumpy, angry infantryman, like the same letters I wrote home. To, you know, you know, for every man on the front line, there's 300 men behind him. You know, not everyone's in combat, Mom. A lot of these guys are hanging out and sipping wine in Rome while we're stuck up here in the mountains. And then... He wrote a letter. I heard Bing Crosby's new song, and 
you know, I loved it. It sounded really nice. Whatever Bing Crosby's new song was at that time, because they had whatever singles or hits. And I seen that consistently with other people talking about Bing Bing Crosby in particular. And then of course there was um there was some other uh uh, big band music uh, names I can't even. There's that real famous song. That in the mood. So when I'm in my car with these veterans, so like let's say we're going somewhere or doing something, you know, I'll go on uh, you know iTunes or Pandora and type in 1940s and just kind of slowly put it on the music, and then I just see their their foot going, you know, kind of like. Well, those are the those are the scenes in the movies we always see that. You know, they're in their uniforms, you know, swing, swing band, dancing, dancing with the girls with the big flowing skirts. Right. And we're we're thrown, that is thrown, that image is thrown in our faces. This is why, like, my book gets really rated R and dark because I say, like, hey, sorry, this is a veteran writing this book. It's not going to be milkshakes and swing dancing and that USA was the good guy the whole time, you know. Here's what they told me in the last days of their life. Yeah, these are the real stories. Yeah, because we media, holy crap, did meet from the 1960s on, did media just paint these Americans as the flawless superheroes, which they are still in my eyes, you know, absolutely. But but they're real. They're real. It's time to tell the other side, you know, um, and it's and I'm doing that also to show these younger veterans like. Don't feel like you're totally different because this is what they did. This is what happened to them. They just happen to be serving during different times, but they are no different than you. You know, I, I well, I can see how that would feel for a post nine eleven veteran. Mm-hmm. You know, someone that spent a lot of time in Fallujah, let's say, yeah, that saw a lot of really dark things and yeah. had to make really difficult decisions, yeah, and, and do bad things because it was war, right? And are the Iraqi people going to be like the Belgian people in seventy five years? You know, that's maybe not. You know what I mean? So that's. You know, I don't want our guys living with that. So that's why I try to bring them some of the darker stories and say, hey, this is why they got away what they did. This is why they did what they did. It happened, but it was these men in this type of extraordinary time. You know, we are the same men just in a different time. And, um, you know, people, you know, going. we were talking about it, it was a conversation for a different time, and I said, will I ever go back to Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever? And it's like, there were some damn good pro-American people, Afghans, uh, the police, the soldiers. I met the, them too. The civilians. Yep. Um, they loved you. They wanted to be you. They dressed like you. Volunteering to be interpreters. Right. And to go home. Can you imagine being someone that lived in, say, downtown Kabul? <laughs> mm-hmm. And your job was to report to a base every day. Yeah. And and interpret for Americans. Yeah. And imagine the size of the balls it takes to leave that base and the protection of the military and to go home to your wife and kids at night yeah. by yourself. I screwed up royally one time. But uh, I'll tell you that's So, yes. So, those people are going to exist. They're going to be there, I hope. Yeah. Um, if the Taliban doesn't retake the whole country and whatever and, and brainwash them to think otherwise. But... You know, I'm like, I always think, like, why, you know, going back to Afghanistan, like, let's just say Afghanistan is in the same place, the same way it looks now to 2011 all the way to whatever, when I'm 70 or 80. No, I wouldn't drag my family over there. I mean, there's flies and fecal matter. So unless Afghanistan becomes like the new Dubai, right, which is possible because people go to honeymoon in Vietnam now. 
You wouldn't have thought that 50 years ago, 40 years ago. People have their honeymoons and vacation and go to Vietnam. And if you ask a Vietnam veteran if you ever thought of that, no. Because the Viet Cong would kill you and chop your head off and whatever else. So I always think like the only way I could see people starting to travel to Iraq or Afghanistan if it just started to come like the Abu Dhabi or Dubai and this guy, you know, rises. The new Middle East. Right. That's the way, you know. So um, because I couldn't even like really (laughs) feed anybody where I was. Like where do we go? Let's hope. This, let's knock on this mud hut and see if this guy wants to cook his goat for us. You know, it's not like we're in France. We can go to a restaurant or a pub. Right. So. Um, it is a trip to think, you know, just a few short years ago that that as a female American journalist mm-hmm. that I was walking in places. Yeah. Under the protection of the U.S. military. Sure. That there's absolutely no way I could walk in those same footsteps right now mm-hmm. yeah that, so that it wouldn't be possible for me to walk around parts of iraq that i had been to yeah. or afghanistan that i had been to but remember the vietnam so i'm saying remember the vietnam generations are the same thing right i would love to someday be able to go back to iraq or mm-hmm. back to afghanistan and go to the places that i was able to visit with the military because the world had evolved and those countries had gotten to the place where I could go back right. with the guys that protected me. Like, I would love to be able to do that yeah. 30, I, 40 years from now. Yeah, I, so, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's different times. Um, you know, the Iraqi government welcomed us. After Saddam was overthrown, they then wanted, we wanted to work with them to make a better Iraq. We equipped their, uh, their soldiers uh, you know, after we took their jobs away, you know, if we we're going back to, you know, the start of the insurgency. But when we started to then rebuild their army and give them uniforms and their, and people were enlisting the Iraqi army to fight al-Qaeda or to fight ISIS or whatever, um, we worked with that government. We worked with the Afghan government who were against the Taliban. So if you look right now, like if you're a World War II veteran and you fought in France, Holland, or Belgium, you can apply for your French Legion of Honor. This is the highest medal you can get in France that was created by uh, Napoleon. So it's like, I don't think, for some reason, even though we were there technically helping the country of Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't see Iraq or Afghanistan coming up with a medal to give our veterans, you know? But like you said, 40, 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have thought that People be vacationing in Vietnam. Yeah, so we'll the see. world. The world changes. People change. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the war in Afghanistan has been officially over for a week, right? Didn't that recently just happen? Yeah, that everyone's supposed to be home by sometime this fall. Yeah, so I don't know. I was reading the New York Times article. It says the war in Afghanistan was like officially, officially over. Case closed. Um, but I don't know. Well, I. Cannot wait to read your book. I think that the stories that you are documenting and the interviews that you're conducting with the, uh, are they all men? I was going to say with these men, are there, is there any female representation? There is females on the rifle, but I could not get um, a good chunky chapter to write 8,000 words with. Um, 
but there are women represented and mentioned in my book. Everything from Marine Corps stenographers to a nurse I met who was 104 years old. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. There's three women on the rifle. There's a, a first Marine Division stenographer. There's the Eva Wagner, who was a nurse, 104 years old, tending to all the wounded coming back from the Battle of the Bulge and being shipped to England. And then there's Lewis McRoberts, who was one of the aid workers in the hospital where General Patton died. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that it goes above and beyond the rifle, that I hope that someday all these tapes and videos and, I mean, the families have just got to be so grateful for the information that you're discovering of their loved ones Mm -hmm. and that we'll all learn the names of all of these veterans that are on the rifle. I, yeah, the day that I have to like give, you know, after I do my book tour and after I get my use out of the rifle, like, what are you going to do with it? That's what I'm saying. Like the day that I have to give it to a museum, I mean, it's, I'm going to give it a nice kiss and probably weep because these are my friends. These are my brothers, you know, and it was such a big part of my life. So. I mean, it, it is a huge journey. Did you, I don't want to give away, obviously, the, the final chapter that you alluded to. Yeah. But. Yeah, I met men that were there that day. Mm-hmm. So you you got the closure that you sought at the start. There was, I would have gotten closure if I met one particular individual who did not die in the 1950s from severe alcohol abuse, if I had got to talk to him. Um, He had showed showed up, I think, a year after my uncle's death in uniform at 2 in the morning, drunk to my great-grandmother's house. They let him come in. He passed out on the sofa. They said, maybe we'll get some answers in the morning, and they woke up, and he was gone. (gasps) And his last name was Brogan, B-R-O-G-A-N, and he was from either Medford or Somerville. Or Cambridge, Cambridge or Somerville, one or the other. And he went and died not soon after the war. And he was older than my Uncle Andy, and they were two best f- friends, and he wrote about Brogan a lot in the letters. Then I found, um, shoot, their family owns a big car dealership in Franklin, Massachusetts, Vendetti. Edmund Vendetti was with my uncle in these letters, he gets wounded by shrapnel and nearly uses the loses uh, the use of his arm. Comes home. I think he became a postal worker and then owned his own dealership after. He died in 2006. I reached out to his grandkids because my uncle specifically wrote, I got to have a, an Italian woman invited us into our home and meet another Italian kid, Vendetti, from Franklin, Mass. She made us food. And her husband was trapped in the United States because of the war. So, Brogan's gone, Vendetti's gone, and then I finally meet two other men who were in the company that day, living one hour from each other in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, who helped tell me about that day and what a disaster it was. We're talking retreat, we're talking mutiny, we're talking all sorts of crazy shit going on on that hill in Italy. And that's how the book ends. Yeah. Yeah, the book ends basically like that, yep. Well, I can't wait to read it. I hope everybody 
goes and checks it out. And I hope that it inspires their own journey of self-discovery and, and family research and lineage to kind of uncover maybe some of the family mysteries that they have. Yeah, you know, I, it's, I'm in a realm where people have been making a living for a lot of years on World War II. And my book opens up like this. It's amazing to think a war that killed an estimated 70 million people has made so many people rich, you know, in the movie industry, the book industry, the, the tour guide industry, the museum industry. The, and I'm not trying to, like, enter their world. I'm a, I'm a veteran. I'm not trying to be a battlefield um, tour guide. I'm not trying to be a super historian. I don't pretend to know everything about every division. I was just a man on a mission to honor some of America's last World War II veterans. So And to uncover a, a mystery yeah, in your own family. Right. So I want people who are going to open this book not saying, oh, let's see how good he is at uh, telling this history and how this happened. Well, let me tell you something. You're not going to get any closer than actually meeting the men who were there. People write entire books whatever, without ever even talking or interviewing a World War II veteran. And I told it the best way they could remember it 75 years after it happened in their 90s. So um, it, it's a great story. Uh, it is by no means uh, a, ref, you know, or a, um, in a, a World War II encyclopedia, but it is a war novel that you'll love. Well, thanks for coming to MCHQ and telling me the story. Thank you for having me. I think this was like one of the best radio shows slash podcasts I've been on because I got to actually explain everything and not just get cut off. So, <laughs> But I am serious that when you start planning another trip that I want to help and get involved as much as I can because I know there's a lot of people that, you know, join me for cocktails in the war room every Tuesday night and listen to the podcast and listen to my new radio show that are going to want to help too. So absolutely. We're just waiting on um, the borders to open up when we can get the green light, when the veterans families will be feel safe enough to let them travel. Uh, good thing is, is every world war two veteran I talked to has been vaccinated to start. And then of course the fundraising. So, well, the fundraising, I think we can help you with. Cool. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. There he is, Andrew Biggio. His new book is called The Rifle. In the show notes of this podcast, you can find all of the links to tell you about the book, where to get it, and details on Andy as well. You'll also find a link to a corresponding playlist. Now, the playlist might sound a little different than the playlists I make for other episodes, but if you're really going to read a book and listen to a podcast about our World War II heroes, then the corresponding playlist should be the music that they love. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything with the Mistress Carrie podcast. Full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the Situation Report with all of your rock news and music headlines in less than five minutes. And if you don't mind, give us a five-star review and leave a comment so I know what you thought of the episode. Huge thanks once again to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org slash careers because they're hiring right now. And also mistresscarry.com. And don't forget to join me every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 